Thank you, worship team, as always. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to be precise. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. What happens after the resurrection and ascension is talking about the first generation church and the way God works in every generation of the church. Let me read to you from the New American Standard Bible, please. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 8, chapter 1 of the book of Acts. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, the apostles were asking Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to take over now? Are you going to set up the millennium now? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epics. You're not supposed to know exactly when the end times will initiate. The, the Father knows, and that's good enough, which the Father has fixed by his authority. It's going to happen, but not right now. But between now and then, whenever the then is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, spiritual power to be what God wants us to be. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, where they were at the time, and all Judea and Samaria, the regions right around Jerusalem, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And when you think about it, Jesus is saying that about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, and here we are reading it in Duncan, Oklahoma. That's the remotest part of the earth, if you're standing where they are. So we are part of the fulfillment of that, ongoing fulfillment of that, until, in fact, the end times kick in. Uh, Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand that bother me. Now, he was a skeptic, and he was an unbeliever. So, you know, you can understand why he would say something like that, uh, very irreverent, very inappropriate. But when believers in Jesus Christ apparently read and understand clear passages of Scripture, like the one we just read, is that at this time the end times are going to initiate, and Jesus tells the apostles and us, you can't know that. Uh, biblical thinkers don't set dates for the initiation of the end times. When believers read passages like that, and Mark 13, and Matthew 24, where Jesus says nobody can know, so stop asking that and move on to other things. It kind of blows my category, my categories that believers could read that. And yet people love to try to set dates for the initiation of the end times. And just a couple years ago, Harold Camping got a lot of publicity because he had announced that the rapture was going to happen in April of what, 2014 um, or 2013. And the crazy thing about that is what you don't know, it probably is Harold Camping who the media presents as, hey, this is what happens if you take the Bible seriously. You become like this cat. And I would say, no, he's a false prophet. He's not a good example of somebody who takes the Bible seriously. He doesn't take it all that seriously. He distorts the Bible. But what you may not know about Harold Camping is about two years before he set the date for the initiation of the end times, which, Sean, what does Jesus say about that here? Don't do it because you can't know it. About two years before that, he announced on his worldwide radio network that the church age had ended, 
that all the churches were an abomination and the only acceptable uh, recipient of your funds, your prayers, and your involvement was his organization called Family Radio. And uh, Family Radio sounds like a pretty good name, right, Fran? I mean, what what could be wrong with Family Radio? Uh, Well, if you're talking about the Manson family, that could be a problem. Adam's family, Held Camping's family, not a good thing. So, you know, what we're trying to do here is let's just shed some light on what Scripture says in context. Let's believe it and think about the implications. And actually, when I read these verses, what I see primarily is verse 8, which really is the key to this book and really a major key to every generation's Christian life until the end times. However, you can't help but notice that according to Jesus, biblical thinkers shouldn't set dates for the initiation of the end times. So just beware of that because it's popular for people to do that. They've done it before. They'll probably do it again. And if nothing else, I think that's the first maybe take home we should see there. Let's pray that we'll be biblical thinkers today and that uh, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and he illumined the text so we'd understand it, believe it, and can apply it. And it's not about information. It's really about transforming truth, right? Right, Doug? It's not just information. It's transforming truth. You've got to move it from your head to your heart, from your mind to your will. Right, Blake? So you've got to live it out at Cameron Duncan, which is a hard place to live the Christian life, isn't it? Because not everybody's a Christian at Cameron Duncan. God bless them. But uh, some of us are holding the line there. So uh, let's pray for uh, teachability. And as always, let's pray for um, our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters. And um, Eric Ward, would you pray in that direction for us, please? Thank you, Eric. Uh, To make sure that our capacity for abstract thought is fully warmed up, let's look at some rewarded songs, and I really mean hymns and choruses for older Christians, and I put that in quotes because you know who you are, right? Give me that old-timer's religion. (laughs) We will gather at the river if Deacon Mike Palavik will drive us, because when you get older, you don't drive as much. Nobody knows the trouble I have seen. I love to tell the story when I can remember it all. Blessed insurance. And finally, guide me thou, O great Jehovah, I've forgotten where I put my keys. Uh, Let's talk about the context of our study this morning. The broad context is the overall book of Acts. This amazing book that moves from the ascension to really kind of the end of the first generation church. And we're suggesting that the, the eight uh, word sentence, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, can allow you to remember the 28 chapters. Let's work through the first five chapters. 
Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Uh, J stands for Jesus ascends to heaven. Notice verse 8 and 9. Uh, don't worry so much about obsessively uh, focusing on the initiation of the end times. The Holy Spirit will allow you to be witnesses in Jerusalem or Duncan High School, all Judea and Samaria, even in Texas or Kansas on business trips to the remotest parts of the world, Mafrak, Jordan, uh, Chichihar, China. Some of us have actually had the privilege of being witnesses in places like that. And then after he'd said these things, Jesus was lifted up. He just ascended straight up to heaven. And while they, the apostles, were looking on, they saw this. It really happened. A cloud received him out of their sight. So that's really the overall, the real focus of the overall chapter. We haven't gotten there, but we'll get there, Lord willing, next week. So what's chapter one about? J, Jesus ascends to heaven. E, the establishment of the New Testament church. Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, 10, 33 AD, 10 days after the ascension, the New Testament church starts. We go from Old Testament to New Testament. Some amazing things happening there. Chapter 3, we see the salvation of a lame beggar, which is a nice paradigm for the theological dynamics of true salvation through faith alone and Christ alone. You unleashing a persecution against the church. One reason Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke writes the book of Acts is to say, hey, God's at work in this thing. Even though everybody involved in the church is flawed, less than perfect, and we're taking casualties. People are dying for this thing, but it's worth it because it's out of this world. Truth we're talking about. And then in chapter 5, J-E-S-U-S, we see overt major moral sin in the church and it involves money as it often does not always but that's what that is so what do we see there first five chapters what happens at chapter one jesus ascends to heaven that's where the gospel of luke ends and the book of acts starts right we believe in a supernatural savior right who lived a perfect life who died to pay our way into heaven on the cross who rose again from the dead and who ascended to heaven literally, physically, and is going to return literally and physically to end history on God's terms. E stands for the establishment of the New Testament church, salvation of the lame beggar, unleashing persecution, and then the Ananias and Sapphira episode, uh, overt moral uh, sin in the church in Jerusalem. Okay, So that's the broad content, uh, context for our study today. Uh, let's look at the more immediate uh, context. We've got a prologue, which is an organized introduction to get you started. And then from the LBSR, what in the world does that mean? Literal bodily supernatural resurrection. You can't do this in a laboratory to the LBSA. I know Jenny knows what that means. Literal bodily supernatural ascension, right? And then, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll start We've been going at just a couple of verses at a time. And I know some of you really smart thinkers extrapolate. Michael's a smart thinker. He's thinking, oh, my goodness, we've got 28 chapters. And Brad's taking them at a clip of like three verses a week. So forget about setting dates for the end times. Let's set a date for the end of this study. It's going to be sometime in the year 2049 at that rate. But we're actually going to pick up the pace. And we'll survey some chunks. That's the technical term, you know. So it won't take us 28 years to get through this. Although, uh, wouldn't it be nice to be in the middle of Acts when the rapture happened? I mean, what could be better than that? But, uh, yeah, we're going to, in two weeks, we'll actually look at all of verses, Lord willing, 
12 through 26, because it's one story and I don't want to break it down into too many component parts. But just to get some feel for what we've been seeing, let's look at verses, uh, let's read verses 1 through 11. We're going to actually look at 6 through 8, but let's get a feel for the broader context here. Luke, writing under inspiration, says the first account, we would call that the Gospel of Luke, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach during his first advent until his ascension, until the day he was taken up to heaven. Luke is like an inverted spiral. The Gospel of Luke is an inverted spiral going to Jerusalem where Messiah is crucified for our sins, resurrected, and then ascends back to heaven just outside of Jerusalem. That's where the book of Luke takes you. And then the book of Acts starts at the ascension and as an outward spiral ends up to the uttermost part of the earth, to the the belly of the beast, the city of Rome, uh, where Paul uh, ends the book uh, just about to appear before the Caesar there. So he says, the first book I wrote, the Gospel of Luke, uh, was all about what Jesus began to do personally. The book of Acts is what he continues to do through his apostles and through believers like us. Uh, Verse Three, to these, to the apostles who he appeared to after his resurrection, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. There's no doubt that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It's a historical and supernatural fact. No apologies for either one of those. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days, we're in this amazing period between the resurrection and the ascension, this 40-day very unique moment in history, incredible period to think about. And can't wait to talk to the apostles in person and future about some details that aren't in the book of Acts. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together, the apostles, probably the last week before the ascension, were in Jerusalem. He commands them not to leave Jerusalem from that point, but to wait for what the Father had promised, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the church age, which would start in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 which you've heard of from me. I've told you about that. For John the Baptist, which is uh, the guy that started basically the Gospel of Luke, if you read it, his dad finding out he was going to be coming. John the Baptist baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized, placed into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together another time, this is the day of the actual ascension, the apostles were asking him, Lord, surely it must be time to set up the kingdom now, right? You've fulfilled the land prophecies. Let's get uh, the lion prophecies going. And he doesn't say, no, there's not going to be a literal fulfillment of that. He just says, you can't know the exact start time of that. But rather than obsessing on that, be actively involved in witnessing for who I am and what I am and for my kingdom. You're going to receive the power you need through the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be my witnesses in your neighborhood, in your school, in your career, in geographical terms, Jerusalem, the city, Judea, Samaria, the region, and all the way out to the most parts of the earth. And after he'd said these things, he was lifted up. There's the ascension. While they were still looking on, physical, undeniable, supernatural, and a cloud. And it's a uh, supernatural cloud of glory, not a you know, cumulonimbus cloud or something received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, kind of spellbound with their mouths open, I'm sure, while he was going up, behold, two men, they looked like young men, but they're in fact angels, in white clothing stood beside them and said, uh, beside them, and they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky, not doing anything? 
this Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven in this way physically, supernaturally, visibly, undeniably will come again at its second advent in the same way, literally, visibly, supernaturally, undeniably, just as you watched him go into heaven. Okay, so that's our broad context. Chapter one's building to the description of the ascension. We'll talk about how important that is, especially in light of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. A lot of people don't connect those dots, but Lord willing, we'll try to do that next week. Now let's look at our verses, verses uh, 6 through 8. And again, we're in this amazing period of time between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. We all know that uh, three days after the crucifixion, what happened? Christ was resurrected, right? Three days after the death of Christ with the resurrection. But 40 days later, he ascends to heaven. And uh, we're talking about events during that period. And we're seeing in our passage today that biblical thinkers... Don't set dates. Let's reread our passage again. Verses 6 through 8. Man, this is Bible-saturated stuff, isn't it? Wow. Incredible. Uh, So when they had come together on the day of the ascension, just outside of Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, as it were, uh, they were asking him. They're not expecting him to leave. They're expecting him to take over. Lord, it's got to be now, right? I mean, you, you died for our sins. You rose again. You fulfilled all those lamb Old Testament prophecies. Now you're going to turn around and fulfill all the reigning lion kind of prophecies, right? It's that this time, right, you're going to restore the kingdom, the physical, literal kingdom to Israel. And he said, you know what? It's not for you guys to know the exact initiation of the end times. The Father has it fixed. It's going to happen. But it's not really up to you, nor do you need to know. Nor will you be able to figure out when it's going to exactly start. But here's what you will know. You're going to receive the power you need through the Holy Spirit to do what I want you to do. And you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to testify what you know about me and about my gospel, both to your culture and outside your culture, uh, to Jews and to Gentiles, to rich people and to poor people, to fishermen and non-fishermen, for those guys. And you're going to be my witnesses ultimately to the remotest parts of the earth such that here we've got Derek McPherson reading what Luke said about that 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. So what we've got here in these three verses is two things. We've got an agenda-laden question, a question not seeking information so much but trying to provide motivation. It's kind of like they're saying, go ahead, Lord, you know, now's the time, right? Now we're going to take over, right? Go ahead and let's get started. We can't wait to be in charge of everything. Uh, And then he gives them a perspective-giving answer. You will never have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, okay? And a lot of times we're tempted to do that, including myself. But God's got a plan. He likes the plan. He didn't check with me about the plan. And we're supposed to just salute who he is and function according to what we do know, okay? Look at verse 6 again, this, uh, this agenda-laden question. So when they had come together, and, you know, you've got this 40-day period, right, between the resurrection and the ascension. Michelle, we're now on the 40th day. This is the day of the ascension from the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem. When they come together, and they, they don't necessarily know this, but he's about to go back to heaven right now. They were asking him a agenda-laden question. Lord, go ahead and set up the kingdom. It's got to be right now, doesn't it? I mean, we, we've been waiting for that, and 
then we thought uh, it was all gone, and then you were resurrected, and then we realized that your death was fulfilling all the stuff Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets said about the suffering Messiah. And now that you've done all that, praise God, uh, let's move on to the next thing, right? We don't always take uh, the Old Testament background. No, Sean does. But you can't really understand the New Testament unless you've got some kind of feel for the Old Testament. Because trust me, uh, the disciples had their faults, but they were Old Testament saturated thinkers. And even though they didn't like the suffering Messiah parts, and a lot of Jews in the first century allegorized the prophecies about a suffering Messiah and said, that's talking about Israel. That's talking about us. That's talking about the Babylonian captivity. That's talking about the Romans dominating us now. But once they saw that, in fact, the prophecies that they would have known so well, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 comes to mind rapidly, the whole uh, symbolism of the Day of Atonement and the, the Passover. Once they realized on this side, remember we're on the 40 days between the resurrection and the, the ascension, once they realized, wow, all that stuff was fulfilled literally by the crucifixion and now the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, surely, since that's out of the way, we've got to segue directly to all the prophecies that talk about the Messiah ruling the world from Jerusalem with redeemed Jewish folks having a preeminent place in the fulfillment of having a, a kingdom on the earth with no war, ideal conditions uh, reigned over by the Messiah himself. Surely it must be time now, right? And the sooner the better, right? That's what they're thinking. And, I don't, you know, a lot of preachers put some kind of bad uh, motivation there. I think it's the obvious thing. They're just starting to connect dots. They're getting excited. They're thinking, wow, man, you totally blew our categories 40 days ago. <laughs> and now it's got to, that's got to, you know, remove all the obstacles for you to go directly to the next phase of the program. They had no idea, Jane, there's going to be at least 2,000 years <laughs> between that point and the next major mountaintop. As a lot of people have said, when you've got the Old Testament prophets talking about the coming Messiah, it's almost like they're looking at the Old Testament prophets are looking at two mountain peaks with a valley between the two. And from their perspective, they kind of describe them almost side by side, right? You've got these two strains of prophecy that the Old Testament interpreters you know, kind of struggled with and did certain things with, but it's almost like there's a valley between those two, right? And now that they saw the one fulfilled, they assume the other one's got to be fulfilled like real, real quick. And so there's an agenda laden there because they're expecting him to set up the kingdom. And sure, they want to they be in charge of the kingdom with him. So they're excited about that. But it's, it's not a malicious thing. And let's say something about the kingdom. Uh, this is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. You know, there's a sense in which the term the kingdom of God just refers to what theologians call the theocratic kingdom of God. Just his rule, his reign over everything as the creator, sovereign planner of everything. Okay. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God involves everything all the time uh, with every creature. But there's also, uh, they call it the mediatorial kingdom of God. And it's referring to what the Old Testament prophets say the Messiah will ultimately bring a physical kingdom on planet Earth ruled over by the Messiah with ideal conditions. Okay, And to me, when Jesus is teaching them and us kind of how to pray, he says, hey, when you pray, kind of pray like this with these kind of themes. Uh, 
our Father which art in heaven, let's focus on who we're focusing on in prayer. What is prayer? Is prayer a crowbar so Kyleen can get what she wants? Because God's reluctant to, to give you what you want and he's not quite sure what you need. I don't think prayer is a crowbar we use to pry blessings out of God's hand. I think it's a channel whereby we seek and submit to God's will, but he allows us to be involved in the process of seeking and submitting to his will and communicating with him like a child does to a father. Uh, But watch, he says, so when you pray, pray to God in heaven, pray that he will be honored in your prayer and after your prayer. And the first thing Jesus says to pray for is that the kingdom will come, the mediatorial kingdom Okay, this is something that's future from when he tells them to pray this. And this is what they're praying about. I mean, see the word kingdom there? Go back to Acts 1, 6. So now that we've had uh, 40 days since the resurrection and the apostles have had a chance to kind of connect all the dots of Old Testament prophecy and realize the crucifixion was at the very center of the plan. It, would, it fulfilled the redemptive work of the Messiah and validated by his resurrection. So now you're going to set up the kingdom. We've been praying for the kingdom to come, where you're going to rule the world under ideal conditions. Now is the time, right? And he says, it's not for you to know. He doesn't say, by the way, you know what? There's not going to be a literal kingdom. Now watch this. Just truth in advertising here. Whenever we talk about a literal millennium, I feel like I owe it to you to let you know Christians much more learned and much more holy and much more prominent than I'll ever be, don't believe there's going to be a literal millennial kingdom on the earth like I'm talking about here, which I think the apostles are expecting. Uh, Those who believe there's going to be a literal millennium kingdom on the earth, that the kingdom they're asking about in Acts 1-6 and the Lord's telling us to pray for in Matthew 6, we're called premillennial thinkers, and that means that pre means before, right? That means that before a literal millennium on the earth, the second advent of Christ must take place. As, as much as we want to evangelize the world, and you can go to Puebla. And when, we won't just go to Puebla. We'll go to Cholula. We'll go to Canoa. We'll go to La Resurrección. We'll go to a lot of places in central Mexico. Uh, as much as we want to evangelize our world and be witnesses like Jesus tells you to be, right, Carol, in verse 8? World evangelism is not going to bring in a millennium. The only thing that's going to bring in a millennium is a supernatural act that's going to stop history as we know it on God's terms. And that's got to be the second event of Christ. So those of us who believe that before a literal kingdom on the earth that the apostles are clearly anticipating... Uh, we've got to have a second ad. The second advent of Christ will take place before a little kingdom. A lot of Christians, in fact, the majority of Christians since St. Augustine in the 4th century have said, you know what, down here, um, the Old Testament people of God, Israel, were promised this kingdom, and it was going to be literal, but they crucified the Messiah, man. They blew it. Uh, and in fact, because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, uh, The New Testament church replaces Old Testament Israel. And all those physical promises to Israel are now going to be spiritually fulfilled in and through the church. So that's called the amillennial. What is moral? Amoral. What does amoral mean? No moral, right? 
the amillennial view that a lot of Christians hold uh, in, in good faith would say Old Testament Israel was promised a physical kingdom, but they blew it. And God put them out of business never to come back into business. The New Testament church now is the millennium in some sense. So those things are fulfilled um, allegorically. Now watch, these good believers believe in a literal second advent, just like all of us do, but they don't believe there's going to be a physical millennial kingdom after that, but we'll just go to the new heavens, new earth, okay? Now there's another view that's actually it's kind of uh, was uh, popular before World War I and World War II, <laughs> and then it kind of went away, and now it's kind of coming back, and that's post and when, you think, when I think of post, I think of post toasties, I think of the post office. But post is actually kind of a prefix that means after. And there are some believers that believe that, in fact, the church is going to bring in kind of a semi-literal millennium by Christianizing the world through evangelism efforts like Jesus exhorts us to in Acts 1.8. And we're going to bring in a millennium. Again, I'd probably put quotes over it. It won't be exactly literal, but it'll be on the physical earth and after, post means after a millennium, then the second advent of Christ takes place. Now, I'm an advocate for this. I want you to know there are other views. I also want you to know that even though I could show you those diagrams without the circles, and you might say, man, those are totally different conceptions of what God's saying. They're not that much different. You notice I'm circling the cross and the resurrection. Do premillennial believers believe that Christ died for our sins and rose again? Do postmillennialists, do amillennialists believe that? Yeah. And that's the gospel, Blake. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. I'm guilty and unable to save myself. But because Christ died for my sins, I don't have to die in my sins. And through faith in him, I can have eternal life. So even though we disagree on the nature of the kingdom that's coming, we all believe in the same Jesus and his first coming. And watch this. Even though I'm going to say, and I think I'm right, or I wouldn't preach it this way, that before a literal millennial kingdom, like they're expecting, Jesus is going to come back before that gets set up, but it's coming. Uh, and even though the amillennials will say, no, that's not going to happen at all. That's change. They do believe in a literal second advent, don't they? It's right there on my diagram, right? So it's got to be true. And the postmillennialists, they believe in a literal second advent, David. So on the main things, what's, what happened in the first coming of Christ, what will happen in his second advent, and what it ultimately leads to, Revelation 21, new heaven, new earth, we're all saying the same thing. So even though there's distinctive differences, don't overstate those uh, as some people do. But watch this, verse uh, 9 of chapter 1. We're going to look at this in detail and connect it with some Old Testament prophecy next week. But after he had said these things, don't obsess over the initiation of the end times. Be witnesses in the now. After he said these things, he ascended up to heaven. And the angelic com commentary is this same Jesus who you've seen go away physically, visibly, supernaturally. He's going to come back the same way. That's the AIM, absolute irreducible minimum of biblical prophecy, a literal second advent. All those other different diagrams, those three different diagrams are important, or I wouldn't mention it all. And I see people's eyes kind of wax over, and I realize those terms, ah, millennialism, what's all that? I mean, I can't spell it, but I know what it means, you know what I mean? Uh, but it's important to realize that Christians have slightly different charts of the end times, but we all believe in the same Jesus, same uh, death, 
burial, resurrection, ascension, right? And a literal second advent. So we're all saying the same things about the main things, right? Now, verse 6 is this agenda-laden question. Lord, surely you're going to set up the kingdom now. And it looks to me like they're expecting a physical kingdom right then. That's what they're hoping for. Look what he says to them in his perspective-giving answer. He says, it's not for you to know the times. Kronos, Kairos, some preachers break all the Greek terms down and make a big deal about that. To me, this is clearly just a hendiadus saying, it's not for you to know when it's going to start. What's a hendiadus? Hendiadus means two for one. If I, we saw this uh, Wednesday night in Thessalonians. If I say, when I think about uh, certain uh, things in this world, let's say drunk driving, I get good and mad. I get good and mad when I think about drunk driving. Okay? I'm not saying I get good. I wasn't good before I got mad about drunk driving. But I get good, and I also get mad. To say I get good and mad means I get very mad. Two words connected by the and that means one thing. Uh, somebody might say, this morning when we came in, me and uh, David were talking about it. Uh, it got a little chilly last night. The thermostats, Homer's pro- programmed the thermostats, so they worked perfectly for us. But it, was, it, it said 65 on the thermostats, but it felt like about 85. Now, maybe it's because I was practicing and I cranked out so much hot air, it kind of warmed up the room. But I, you know, I could have said, uh, I feel nice and warm. In fact, almost too nice and warm. Uh, when I say I'm nice and warm, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm nice. I'm really nice. And I'm warm. To say nice and warm means I'm nicely warm. I'm comfortably warm, right? Times and ethics isn't saying all kinds of specific technical stuff. He's just saying you can't know specifically before time when the end times are going to initiate with the, the rapture event, with the coming of Christ for the church. But Rather than obsessively focusing on timing issues, here's what I want you to focus your attention on. Be empowered by God's Spirit so you've got His priorities, and be my witnesses in your culture, out of your culture, at home, on your business trips. And specifically to these recipients of this message in context, he's looking at the apostles and he says, Look, in 10 days after the ascension, the church is going to start, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. You're going to receive a new kind of permanent power that Old Testament believers didn't necessarily receive. Old Testament uh, believers being filled with the Spirit was usually prophet, priests, and kings, and it could be selective, and it could be taken away or given up and down, in and out. But for us as believers, the Holy Spirit resides within us and will give us what we need so we can be what He wants us to be. Now, God didn't call me to be Billy Graham. Or Chuck Swindoll. I'm doing the best imitation of Brad McCoy I can do uh, every week, you know. And that's all he calls me to be. And he, you know, he didn't give me Sonya's gifts, okay. If I had your pipes, I would probably have a theater in Branson, you know. I can juggle, so I could sing, juggle, and do Bible studies, you know. And I'd, it'd be great, you know. But God didn't want me to do that. So he gave me juggling and Bible teaching. I don't have the singing, right. But he's, and he's talking specifically in verse 8 to the apostles I think it applies to every generation, certainly. But when you break that down, he says, hey, you guys are going to be literally my witnesses, my foundational witnesses establishing my church. First in Jerusalem where you are. What do you know about Jerusalem? Friendly place for Christ and Christians? They crucified our leader in Jerusalem, just outside the city walls, right? 
not a friendly, uh, remember that time uh, Rigo's, uh, uh, the uh, Hispanic churches, you know, uh, the evangelistic thing in Fuquake Park, and Sonia sang one time for that, and uh, she had the one microphone, and as she finishes singing, she hands me the microphone, I'm going up there to speak, and she goes, tough crowd, (laughs) remember that? Yeah, I mean, Jerusalem was a tough crowd. And like I said last week, if these guys were inventing this, they would have, they would put, if they were putting words in Jesus' mouth, they would have had him saying, go ye quickly to Galilee, stay there, hide out, and then secretly figure out how you're going to promote this thing. Uh, the only reason they're in Jerusalem is because he, the risen Christ told them to be there because it's not safe for them. You know, you couldn't get life insurance. But he actually, in that statement, is breaking down geographically how the early church expanded from the uh, epicenter of Jerusalem. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. And by the way, the word witness, look at this, Scott. I know Scott loves these uh, Greek things. The word witness in New Testament Greek is martus, martus. It means to give an oral testimony of something you know to be true. Uh, I wonder what English word we get from martus. Try martyr. The, the anglicized version of that became uh, the, the word martyr because most of the early, many of the early witnesses for Jesus were killed for this thing. They became martyrs. So we get the word martyr from the Greek term for witness. But he just lines it out in a logical kind of larger and larger concentric circle kind of a thing. And when you break down the rest of the content of the book, you see the birth of the church and the church expanding in Jerusalem, then the birth of the church and the church expanding in Judea and Samaria, and then the birth of the church and the church expanding to the uttermost parts of the earth, which for us would be Duncan today, but for them it was Rome, belly of the beast, where uh, all the persecution and the hatred started. So let me ask you a question. How does verse 8, you're going to receive power through the Holy Spirit, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remote parts of the earth. How does that, David, relate to what we call the Great Commission? Uh, Go into all the world, you know, uh, uh, baptizing, preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How How does that commandment of Jesus relate to this one? A lot of people, I think a lot of laymen who should know better will say it's the same occasion Luke's just describing it in slightly different words, or maybe Jesus talked for 30 minutes and he said, said it this way in verse 1-8 uh, uh, at the beginning, and then he said what Matthew said later. Uh-uh, not possible. Look at Matthew 28 real quick. And we're almost done. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That involves uttermost parts of the earth, cer- certainly. Uh, baptizing those who believe in the name of the Father and Son, teaching the baptized believers who have identified with the church to observe all I've commanded you, and I'll be with you as long as the present age will be. And you don't know when it's going to end, do you, Stan? Because you don't set dates, do you? So how does that fit with Acts 1-8, Janice? What do you think? Well, I'm going to suggest to you, Jesus says that about 10 or 20 days before he says what he says at Acts 1-8. And here's why I say that. Look at verse 16. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. You guys know that Jerusalem 
is in the southern part of Israel, and it's in the region called Judea, and Galilee's in the northern region. And Jesus is resurrected on Easter Sunday that night in Jerusalem. The disciples see him. A week later, they see him again in Jerusalem. After that, they see him a couple times in Galilee. They go fishing, get the 153 fish. He, on a mountain in Galilee, he tells them the Great Commission. And then I think toward the end of that, he probably says, get back to Jerusalem. we got more to tell you. Then go back to Acts chapter 1. Probably about a week or so before the ascension. We're not in Galilee now. They've come back to Jerusalem, gathering together, gathering them together after the Great Commission in Galilee. He says, stay in Jerusalem. Hang tight. We're not done yet. We're going to start here. And then in verse 6, so when they'd come together on a different occasion, the day, a couple of days after that, maybe a week after the events of 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, now we're the day of the ascension. And so what he's saying in, in one eight is to reinforce kind of the where of the Great Commission and to reinforce the fact the kingdom's not coming immediately. It could come imminently, but it's not coming today. And don't set dates Today, Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do if you knew for a fact the Lord Jesus was going to come back tomorrow? What would you do today? He said, I'd plant a tree today, meaning I'd do whatever I was going to plan to do anyway, because it was significant enough to do if, you know, anyway. So I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do anything that's not significant. And you might say, planting a tree is not going to have a time to grow. Yeah, well, grow up during the millennium. I believe in a little millennium. You've got a thousand years for the tree to grow. So plant those trees, you know. Uh, but here's the thing. One-eight of Acts isn't the same thing as the Great Commission, but they certainly parallel. The Great Commission says our job is to make disciples of Jesus by going with the gospel, identifying people through baptism and other ways with Christ's church as believers, and then teaching them the word. And we do it where we are and wherever we go. And we don't do it in Brad's power. We do it in the Holy Spirit's power. But the message that they share and we share is summed up nicely in John 3, 16. God, the father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world full of sinners like all of us so much. He gave his son to die for our sins and rise again, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life because Christ died for our sins, which means everything that could keep you out of heaven, Jesus died for. That's what we mean, David, when we say Jesus died for your sins. This isn't he did something for you and now you do something for him and we enter into this, let's make a deal arrangement and you kind of broker a deal. Uh, it's not the way it works. Uh, this isn't let's make a deal. This isn't probation. This is salvation provided by somebody else's work, the work of Christ on the cross. And the resurrection of Christ validates the saving power of his death because he's not dead anymore. A dead Savior is not going to be able to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But the resurrected Savior, Carolyn's the only one who can. And he is, he's Yeshua HaMashiach. He's Jesus the Messiah, right? Uh, I love what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says about salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is a rational act, but it's totally unmeritorious. It's active, receptive trust in the sufficiency of Christ to save us. For by grace, unmerited favor, are you saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's a gift. Not of works, so there's nothing for the savees to brag about. And that's the essence of salvation. It's also the essence of spirituality. 
We're not focusing on how great we are. We're focusing on how great our Savior is, right? So take this to heart. Uh, In addition to the absolute key to the book of Acts found in 1.8, the agenda-laden question, surely it must be now we're going to set the millennium, right? And he doesn't say, look, there's not going to be a literal millennium. Israel blew it. It's all going to be spiritual and allegorical. He doesn't do that. He doesn't question the premise. He just says you can't know when it's going to start, okay? The initiation of the end times is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It will be sudden when it happens with no announcements and no impending signs that have to happen first. But none of us can know when that's going to be. So the bottom line is this. We've got to take a big dose of humility here, and that's okay. God knows the exact timeline for the initiation of end times prophecy. We don't, and that's okay. It's okay not to know. I was like... Usually after a message like this, somebody will say, okay, I heard what you said, but really, when's it going to start? I don't know. You don't know. Anybody who says they know either is uh, an egomaniac, Harold Camping, or just uh, totally unaware of the fact that the universe runs on God's schedule, not ours, and he's okay with that. Okay? And, hey, I have a schedule. Every Sunday afternoon, I write out my to-do list for the week, including all the stuff you guys ask me to do between now and when I go home. And it's a long list some, some weeks, okay? Fold those, chairs, fold those chairs, you know, or whatever I'm supposed to do up here. And I do it pretty much most of the time. Make that coffee, whatever it is, you know. Uh, and we try to do it. But uh, I love my schedule. Well, the only problem is one of the, my pet peeves is losing my schedule. I write all this stuff out on Saturday, Sunday afternoon, and then I can't find it on Monday morning, which is very disconcerting, I'm just telling you. But the universe runs on God's schedules, not ours. Now, here's the thing. So that means you shouldn't study Bible prophecy. Not at all, man. I love Bible prophecy. And we're just sneaking up to the prophetic part of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, The event that will initiate the end times, the rapture event, we know quite a bit about because of passages like 1 Thess 4, 13 through 18, And we're just a couple of weeks away from looking at that in detail. So we can know quite a bit about Bible prophecy because God has revealed it. Kind of the who, what, and why of the end times. But we can't know the exact when, and that's just the bottom line. So get over it. Uh, Now, sometimes people go, well, that's just not fair. Some people will argue against kind of literal fulfillment of prophecy for that reason. If Jesus knew in 33 A.D., when his guys are asking about the kingdom, if he knew it wasn't going to happen for at least 2,000 years, surely he would have told them that. You know, in the wisdom of God, he wants us to have a heavenly expectation all the time. And a big part of that is the imminent but unable to date initiation of the end times. That's a big part of God getting us to think more out of the box about kind of plugging in eternity to the routine things a mother does. It's waking up. You got to wake them up, make sure they get dressed, make sure Eric gets, I guess he's got to have bacon on his potato. Huh? Is that it? Uh, to be happy, whatever it is. I read between the lines, you know, I don't look like I'm very smart, but I connect all the dots just so you'll know. Uh, and I use some of the stuff against you. So just be aware. Uh, no, I mean, all the stuff that we think is routine uh, needs to be baptized into a, supernatural, eternal uh, 
context, right, Tommy? Otherwise, you're going to crack up because so much stuff that happens to you down here just doesn't add up at all. But, you know, here's the thing. So I think God is happy with, uh, you know, keeping that unknown and unknowable in part to fuel us having a heavenly mindset. But beyond that, Matt, and I've said this many times, some of you have heard this, but, you know, whether or not the rapture happens in our lifetime or doesn't happen for another 2,000 years, each one of us is only one heartbeat away from eternity anyway, right? All of us live uh, with an imminent end of our physical life. And what's the end of the physical life for the believer? Absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. So we ought to have that expectation, even if the Lord had said, hey, the rapture will happen on uh, March 16th, my birthday, uh, 2059. If he had if he said that, and that's when it's going to happen, I think a lot of people would say, well, we don't need to really get busy and too excited about this until maybe a month before, <laughs> you know, right? That'd be one thing. Uh, but that would kind of beg the, the idea that we're all just one heartbeat away from eternity anyway. Am I right, Wanda? You know, you only get so many heartbeats. So we're all living in with, sh- with imminence kind of built into us because of our own mortality. All right. So uh, biblical thinkers do not set dates for the initiation of the end times. It could happen this afternoon. And if it doesn't happen for another thousand years, you might be with the Lord this afternoon anyway. So we got to live now with an eternal, spiritual heavenly perspective. Very critical for a normative Christian living. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, forgive us for letting the world kind of cram our song down our throat. And I'm just as bad as anybody looking at the details and looking at the issues and the problems and challenges. Help us to baptize our perspective in your grace, in your eternal purposes, in the reality of heaven, in the reality of a resurrected, ascended uh, Savior, the Lord Jesus, at your very right hand anticipating the next major event in your prophetic program returning for your church, his church. Help us to see that as just as real as whatever business meeting we've got to attend tomorrow morning, whatever test we've got to take next week, whatever bill we've got to pay uh, Tuesday morning, and let it baptize our whole perspective and make us more contagious.